Well, good morning, New City. As most of you already know, uh, my name is Chris Payne. I'm the senior pastor. Just kidding. My name is Justin Taylor, and I'm one of the worship pastors on staff at New City Church. And as you can probably tell by my accent, I'm not originally from here. I'm, uh, I'm from the uh, South Park campus. Um, <laughs> but if you're joining us online today, uh, welcome. And if you, like me, are a guest here at Matthews West, then a very special welcome to you as well. And I've got to say, as someone who typically leads worship, uh, what a blessing it is to be led by the likes of Jay and his team. Um, special thank you to them. Man, I'm feeling the glory right now. So um, special thank you to, to you, Jay, and your team for all that you do. I'd like to waste no time, if it's okay by you, by jumping into our text for today in Acts chapter 15, starting verse 36. And we're in the middle of a series called Sent, which follows the gospel's progress, kind of like Acts 1 verse 8 has prophesied, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and now where we are in the story, even to the ends of the earth. But our passage today comes in like a rude, unhappy segue in what has otherwise been a really good story up until now. And that is the dispute that happened between Paul and Barnabas, what John Calvin called a melancholy dispute. And Luke leaves us without knowing how it ends, who's right and who's wrong, and what we're supposed to do with this story. Or does he? So we're going to jump right in. But just before we do, won't you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we long to please you this morning in the way that we listen and attend to your word. And so we ask that by your spirit, you would attend to both the reading and the hearing of your word and even to its preaching. And for Davis Kirkendall, who's at South Park, Travis Janusek, who's just a mile down the road at Matthews East, and uh, for me as well, that the words of our mouths and for us as a congregation, as the meditation of our hearts would be ever pleasing in your sight O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So let's jump in to Acts. We start 36. Let's jump back one verse, uh, verse 35. Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Now, that was his cousin, Colossians 4.11 tells us. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, which was his hometown, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, in which was Tarsus, his hometown, strengthening the churches. And I've got to say, 
as I read a passage like that and I get that kind of bam in the chest where there's these two titans of the New Testament, two apostles who seem to get it wrong, that my temptation is to, is to want to procrastinate and avoid what Luke is trying to say here. My first temptation is to kind of use this as a springboard to talk about something else, right? So like I get this, this, this unholy kind of conflict that leaves these two apostles splitting up in different directions. And I wanna to say to you, okay, so this is what happened. Don't try that at home. Let's talk about unity. Let's talk about godly conflict. Let's pull some good principles from other bits of scripture, not that one, and look, uh, and look at like what, what unity could look like if we did not that. And my temptation is to not do business with Luke, but rather let's avoid this passage for now and talk about the other ways that scripture talks about that. Use it as a springboard to talk about it. And I'd far rather do business with Paul. You know, Paul talks about unity and conflict much better than Luke seems to do, right? He's like, if there's any encouragement from his love, any fellowship from the Spirit, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind and being in full, of, of full accord with one another, agreeing with one another. That's what I wanna preach on. I don't wanna preach on this unresolved thing that Luke seems to raise and doesn't seem to deal with. But as long as I deal with these other passages that say the things that the Bible ought to say, then I don't have to do business with Luke. The other temptation for me is I wanna kind of like, okay, well, let's just stay in the passage, but let's kind of soften what's going on in here. It's like, let's not be so fast, right? Sharp disagreement doesn't mean what you think it means. You know, they, they could be disagreeing about the content of what they were talking about, but they loved each other, they were getting along. But unfortunately, the more I studied this, the more commentaries I read, the more I saw that Paul and Barnabas just got into a big fight. Apparently, sharp disagreement means sharp disagreement. <laughs> so I thought, well, let's check the Greek. And um, the Greek was very disappointing. The word Greek for sharp disagreement is paroxysmos, where we get the word paroxysm. Now, if you speak English like me, I never knew that was an English word. But apparently, in a medical context, here's the definition. It can mean convulsion or refer to someone running a high fever. It carries with it overtones of severely heightened emotions, red and distorted faces, loud voices, things that were better left unsaid, a sorry sight. So I couldn't soften it, and I couldn't springboard into another passage. Dealing with Luke is not easy. And there was a third temptation that came, and it was a little bit more subtle. I thought to myself, if we could find out, if there was a way to find out by really mining this scripture, or maybe other scriptures, we could figure out who was right. Because if I know who is right, then I could read it and say, well, you know, Barnabas, you had this coming. You should have been in line. And then only one of them is wrong. 
But as it turns out, it seems as we read this passage that there's nothing within what Luke is saying that ought to mean that one was right over and against another. If Barnabas was right, then we would say, you know, Paul, you were so harsh. You don't believe in these people. You don't give people a second chance. You preach this grace, but you don't give it to the people who are working with you. And then we would have said, oh, Paul. But then if Barnabas was wrong, we was like, yeah, Barnabas, you should have known. You, you know, it's kind of nepotism, really. You know, you're working with your cousin, bring him under. And Paul's like, you know what? Nothing against John Mark, but you know, you need a certain amount of grit to undergo persecution and do this kind of apostolic ministry. And we've got a lot of persecution still to come. And I'm just looking at your track record. So Barnabas is looking at the human potential. Paul is looking at a track record. And in a sense, both of them are right. But as it turns out, if we read some of the rest of the scriptures, we see that Barnabas ended up being right. Though there's nothing in the passage to say that he ought to have been right, that's the way the cookie crumbled, so to speak. And later in the New Testament, we'll see no fewer than three favorable shout-outs from Paul about Mark. Not all the scholars agree that it's talking about the same Mark, but many do. And even if half of them are right, we've got a totally different picture of how the story ended between Paul and John Mark, Barnabas' cousin. And none more striking than the last letter that Paul ever wrote. So realize this is Paul at the end of his life, just before he's about to be martyred. The last thing that Paul thought in ink includes what he thought about John Mark. What does he say? Have a look at the screens. 2 Timothy 4, verse 11. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. I kind of want to say, oh, no thanks to you. <laughs> this is the work of Barnabas that has made it possible for Paul to say, now, just recognize this. Paul is, only has Luke with him, and he only wants two more people to come with him in the, the work, so that it would just be Paul and three others. One would be Luke, who's already there. The next is the recipient of the letter, right, Timothy. And I only want one other person as I, as I reach the sunset of my ministry, one other person, and that's Mark. But don't miss the detail right at the beginning of the verse. Luke alone is with me. What does that tell you? That means that before Timothy even received the letter, while it was in the process of being written, there was one person with me. Luke. Luke knew how the story between Paul and Barnabas ended before Timothy, the recipient of the letter did, before the rest of the church got to know how the story ended. Except that Paul typically didn't, he didn't write his letters down himself. Typically, he dictated them, right? So at the end of Romans 16, he says, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, sends you greetings. Many times at the end of his letter, he say, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. See, which big, see what big letters I use. And so he would sign off a letter, but typically he dictated them. 
Now, if Paul, if Luke alone is with him, who had the pen in his hand when the letter was being written? Luke did. So even if half of these details are fudgy, there is no way you can make a case that Luke did not know how the story would end when, many years later, he would write the Gospel of Luke and then the story in Acts. So why does Luke, who knows more intimately and more priorly than anyone else how the story ends, why does he not tell that story? Because that's not the story that Luke is trying to write here. That is not the punchline, that is not the emphasis that he wants us to have as we read this passage. So although the temptation is to smuggle in epistles from other parts of the Bible and to say, okay, I, Paul relieves the tension that Luke gives me, Luke has no desire to do that for me. And that's because Luke has something else that he wants to say in this passage. And that something else is the gospel of God is unstoppable. Remember how the passage begins, right? What is their desire? What's their goal? Let's go back to the churches we came from and let's strengthen the churches. And what happens in the end of the story? Their goal is realized. They go and they strengthen the churches. But not only is their goal realized, it's doubled. Psalm chapter 76 verse 10 says that God uses human wrath in the service of his praise. So that not only in spite of their sin, but embarrassingly, even because of their sin, God works his plan. Now, I want to be very careful here, right? We know that God, though he is intimately involved in all the activities of human life, good and sinful, we know that God himself is uncontaminated by sin. But at the same time, you and me have to do business with the God about whom Joseph will say to his brothers who sold him into slavery, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be saved as they are today. So that we're dealing with a God who time and time again throughout the scriptures does things that seem to us completely scandalous. The things that God seems to have his hands in. How do we get our minds around that? I have no idea. But there it is in the passage. There it is in the scripture, time and time again. St. Augustine takes a stab at talking about what this might look like. How does this work? I have a, a note in my, um, in my notes, a note in my notes that says to drink water before reading Augustine. Before there was C.S. Lewis, there was St. Augustine a wordsmith of notes. So follow what he's saying. He's talking about human natures and human wills. Nature, the characteristics that, make, that describe what we're like, our nature, and our wills, 
what we decide to do, the things, the decisions we make, how we're made, what we decide to do. And he says this, but God, as he is the supremely good creator of good natures, so is he of evil wills the most just ruler, so that while they make ill use of good natures, he makes good use even of evil wills. In other words, again, as Joseph says, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And right from the beginning of scripture through to the end, God, for whatever reason he seems as good, uses people like Pharaoh and Jacob and Samson and Nebuchadnezzar and Paul and Barnabas, even their arguments, and you and me to accomplish his good purposes. And there's a lesson in that for us because you are not sinful enough to throw God off of his course. You're not powerful enough to stop God from doing the good that God intends to do for us. I'll put it another way. I will build my kingdom, Jesus says, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. If the gates of Hades will not prevail against him building his church, how much less so we, who sometimes accidentally, sometimes on purpose, do the things that we do. And right from the word go, this is the message that Luke is trying to say throughout the whole book. Quite coincidentally, there was a God moment this week. I was reading a, a, a book on the Holy Spirit. It's just a, a, a book on the, the use and the, the mentioning of the Holy Spirit throughout from Genesis to Revelation and then through Christian history and then up to the present day. And one of the things that was just in there, not a, as a part of me looking at this, was talking about you know, the, Holy, the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And it mentioned a commentator who named his commentary on the book of Acts you cannot stop the gospel. In other words, for this biblical scholar, when he looks at the whole book of Acts and says, what's the bottom line? You cannot stop the gospel. The gospel is unstoppable. And Luke does this absolutely deliberately, right from the word go. The voice of Gamaliel calls to us from chapter five. What does he say? For if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. The gospels say three times, identically, heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said. But my words will never pass away. My old pastor, um, he, he passed in like uh, 2003. This was in South Africa. But he used to talk about the sovereignty of God by saying, God is the totally unfrustrated one. God is the totally unfrustrated one. And he is unstoppable because he is faithful to his word. So scriptures say, though we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 
And as you can imagine, the fact of the gospel being unstoppable holds implications for you and for me. The temptation that we have when we get into our workplaces, when we get around our friends and family, when it comes to thinking about the gospel, our temptation will be the same as mine and yours when we come to a passage like that. The temptation would be to springboard to another, another passage. Let's talk about something else. Let's procrastinate. Let's uh, distract ourselves from the tension that is going on in this moment because I don't want to deal. Other times we will be tempted to soften what's going on. It's not so bad. He's got a good heart. She's got good intentions and will soften what's really going on in the situation. And these are ways of procrastinating the fact that God's gospel is unstoppable. And we might wanna say, we wanna, might wanna smuggle in other scriptures to say, you don't know how this is gonna end. You don't know the story that they've been to. You don't know where they've come from. You don't know how it's gonna end. It's gonna be great. And we don't deal with the fact that when you're sitting with that person with, with, that you love that much, and you're sitting with this kind of, oh, that's when the fact that the gospel is unstoppable comes through full force. And this has huge implications for you and for me. Not just the good news itself, the gospel is good news, but the fact that the good news is unstoppable holds implications for you and for me on a Monday morning. One of the things is that it offers a warning. We might most readily think that it's a message of grace, and it is. But in it, there's a warning as well. Because if the gospel is unstoppable, then the gospel will go on with or without you. Paul says, I beat my body and make it my slave, lest after having preached the gospel to others, I myself might be disqualified for the prize. Now, I want to reiterate the good news. There is where sin abounds, Grace abounds all the more. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. There is no sin that God cannot overcome. But at the same time, God, though he is completely uncontaminated, may turn our sin for the good that neither lets us off the hook nor does it give us a license to go on. There's a double-edgedness to the way that Jesus teaches. We need to, em, uh, to uh, emphasize the grace of Jesus. But the incarnate Lord would say things like, neither do I condemn you, I forgive you, and sin no more. We have to hold on to both of these truths. The fact that the gospel is unstoppable offers warning, but it also gives peace. Perhaps this is the more obvious one. Because when we recognize that primarily it is God who does the doing, there's a kind of peace to that. Because we recognize our place and our posture within the matrix of God's work in this world. Hilary of Tours um, was a, a bishop in the fourth century. And he had a saying, he said, people like us often have a blasphemous anxiety to do the work of God for him. A blasphemous anxiety to do the work of God 
for him. Because so often we want to generate a wave of effectiveness for God. We want to dream big things for God as if God is up there saying, wow, that's impressive. I never thought of that. I'm going to bless that because that's something I can get behind. God doesn't get behind. God's in front. And yes, the message of the gospel is a message of grace. But not only that, the, the advancing of the gospel is an advancement by grace. It'll not be to my credit, but to his. And Paul knew this well. He said, I, the worst of sinners, have been chosen to magnify the gospel. Almost embarrassingly, we contain this, this message in jars of clay to show that this ever-surpassing power is from God and not from man. Amen? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord God of hosts. And there's a peace in that. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled and strivings cease. When you recognize that the gospel doesn't depend on your spiritual muscle, there's a peace in that. And it helps when I get to Monday morning, when I'm with those people that I love, people I get on my nerve, people who I'm like, you, you need the gospel, that we don't have to second guess and say, well, what if I said it this way? Um, maybe I said too much. You know, I've said too much and now, I'm, and now I've pushed them away. It's in moments like that that the unstoppability of the gospel, not just the gospel itself, but the, its unstoppability is good news for you and for me. And I need to hear this all the time. Between the first service and the second service, I was standing at the back and I went to Bob Ashley, good friend, there he is. Sorry, I didn't ask your permission for this, but I went to the back and said, can you please pray for me? I feel like, you know, after the service, uh, I love greeting people and all of that, and my eyes kind of go from the message to myself, how am I doing? Did I do okay? Did, this get, did I say the things I needed to say? Did I say too much, too little? And I really, I just want to please the Lord. And he, he put his hand on me and he said, brother, the gospel is unstoppable. That even me, as I sit in between preaching the message that God is unstoppable, I can forget it and need to hear constantly that it is not by might, and not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Amen? The gospel holds warning. Its unstoppability holds warning. But wow, it's tremendous peace. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way. I love Dietrich. This is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ Jesus in which we may participate the more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and the strength and the promise of all our fellowship is in Jesus Christ alone, the more serenely shall we think of our fellowship and pray and hope for it. And that's the third thing. Yes, it offers warning, gives peace, but the unstoppability of the gospel invites prayer. Because if we recognize that as a matter of first importance, it's God who does the doing, then we don't want to start doing 
without figuring out what's going on here. Moses' words, unless your spirit goes from, if, unless your spirit goes with us, we will not depart from this place. That's how the book of Acts started. They sat down and they waited and they prayed and we say, we're gonna do nothing until we see what the spirit is up to and what the Lord is up to. And there's gonna come times where we're gonna strategize and we're gonna think about the most effective way of participating in God's work and the gospel. And that's what we're gonna do when we start reading Luke's passages about unity and love and mission. But first, well, what Paul says about this, but first, today, we have to do business with Luke. And what Luke is saying is that there's an intention to spread the gospel and there's all the mistakes that we make and God just gets it done. So let's get on board and let's pray. When it, when it says uh, in the scripture, the, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, grab a shovel, let's get to work. No. The workers are few and therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send workers into his field. It is God who does the doing. And the way and our job within the fact of the gospel being unstoppable is to seek. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. And so I want to suggest one prayer, just one, and you can pray many more, that does that really well. And it's the prayer that the Lord gave to us, the Lord's Prayer. And there's several reasons why that's good. And I want to suggest just three, very quickly. One, it's community. It's communal aspect. Notice that the Lord, Lord's Prayer pulls us out of the 21st century where we think of our faith primarily in terms of I, me. And it pulls us into the language of community so that not only do we think of ourselves in, in posture, in humility to the fact that the Lord is doing it, but our place within a community of Christ followers. That it is not I who have to generate a wave, but that we together participate in his work. Secondly, as long as Paul and Barnabas are seeking this kingdom together and praying this prayer, they cannot go on very long being like this when both of them are praying that their forgiveness from God is contingent on their forgiving one another. Forgive us as we forgive them. It's not easy to pray that meaningfully for very long without having the story end the way it actually did in 2 Timothy. And that prayer in the process of seeking his kingdom helps us to think of that communal aspect. The second and perhaps most obvious is its content, right? It teaches us that the kingdom, number one, doesn't belong to us. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done. It teaches us to seek the kingdom because it's embedded in a prayer and it's a petition. It's something we ask for. And it's a great prayer because it puts it right at the top. We seek his kingdom first and his righteousness. And thirdly, and this is one of my favorites, is the fact that it's called the Lord's Prayer is because it's the prayer that Christ prayed. 
I've often heard it called, it's like, this is not the Lord's prayer, this is the disciples' prayer, because we're the ones who are supposed to pray. And that's absolutely true. We are the ones who are supposed to pray it. But that doesn't negate the fact that Jesus is the ultimate embodiment of this prayer. He doesn't have his own sins to ask forgiveness for, but he took onto himself all of our sins and in that state forgave them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus was the one who prayed, our Father, Abba, Father. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. He preached and sought the kingdom of the Lord. I do not preach of my own accord, but only what I see the Father doing. He preached the kingdom. He not only knew hunger and received food for his own hunger, but he also distributed food for the thousands, daily bread, forgiveness, deliverance from evil. Jesus lives to make intercession for us right now at the right hand of the Father. If he is not seeking the kingdom in his praying, praying for our needs, physical, spiritual, for the forgiveness of our sins, for the leading not into temptation, and for the deliverance of evil, I don't know what he's praying for. He lives to make intercession. So as we pray the Lord's Prayer, the neat thing about this prayer in particular is that it's not simply a prayer that's been given to us, but as we pray it, we are participating in the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is most rightly called the Lord's Prayer. And so the fact of the Lord's Prayer is really neat because we know theologically that God, it's God who does the doing. But when we pray this prayer, we're realizing that ultimately it's Jesus who does the praying. And so even the prayer is caught up into the work of God and the unstoppability of his kingdom. That God is not sitting idle waiting for us to pray him into activity. But rather, as we pray, it's kind of like when you go to the eye doctor and you're getting the lenses, the right lenses, and suddenly it comes into focus. The prayer allows us more readily and habitually as we do it on and on to see what it is that the Lord is already doing. All of you know what this feels like. If you've lived long enough, you know what it feels like that some of the worst mistakes you've made have led to some of the best things in your life. And it's kind of embarrassing. And you look back and you say, I will never do those things ever again, but I'm thankful for how the Lord used that. I made huge mistakes in ministry when I was a youngster in South Africa 15 years ago. I made huge mistakes in relationships. And I ran away from the Lord, ran away from ministry. And in that state, I met Amber, my wife, by the way. <laughs> And I met a wonderful girl that I wouldn't meet if I hadn't sinned. And I can't take any credit for that. The Lord is doing what the Lord's doing. And it led me to be here behind a pulpit. This is not to my credit. This is because the gospel of God is unstoppable. And God works all things to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Amen. 
Let's stand together, and we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together, if that's okay by you. Does it feel kind of liturgical? But it's in the Bible, so we're good with that. Let's hold hands. All the Pauls and Barnabases here, let's make friends. All the, all the John Marks and uh, Pauls, let's hold hands and let's pray this prayer together. All together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.